Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Shortly after my mother passed away 13 years ago, I received a phone call from an obituary writer with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Marita Robinson-Brown was the first African-American woman to graduate from Temple University School of Pharmacy in 1943. The obituary writer called because she said that my mom was a trailblazer. Of course, I don't disagree. My mom didn't even want to attend Temple. She wanted to attend Howard University to experience going to a historically black school. She didn't want to deal with the racism she might encounter at Temple. However, my grandfather didn't want his, quote, baby girl going away to school. So she stayed in Philly, lived at home, and went to Temple, where she immediately encountered the racism she anticipated. This is how my mom described her freshman experience when she was honored on the 50th anniversary of her graduating class. My mom said, quote, I felt right away that there were some on the faculty that wanted me to drop out. I had to reach inside to find the courage to continue, end quote. My mom said she would often come home crying as a college freshman. Seeing his daughter so distraught, my grandfather told my mom that she could transfer to Howard after her freshman year. But somewhere along the way, my mom found the strength to forge ahead. She didn't transfer. She stayed at Temple, and she graduated in three years. I don't have my mom's courage or academic achievements but her influence on me often manifests itself when I least expect it. Before I moved forward with this podcast, I debated whether I should do it. Did I really want to share my views regarding racism, equality, and discrimination, not just among family and friends, but in a public forum? Then I thought about my mom. What would she say if I could ask her whether or not I should do a podcast to discuss racial issues in the NFL? hoping that listeners would gain more understanding. I already knew what my mom would say. So I'm doing this podcast for my favorite trailblazer. Welcome to Black in the NFL. I'm your host, Clifton Brown. Today's episode features the Ravens' foremost trailblazer, Ozzie Newsom, the NFL's first black general manager. Joining Newsom on the podcast will be three of his closest friends. Kevin Byrne, the Ravens' recently retired Executive Vice President of Public and Community Relations. Calvin Hill, Newsom's former teammate with the Cleveland Browns, who presented him at his Pro Football Hall of Fame induction. 
and Pittsburgh Steelers assistant head coach John Mitchell, the first black player at the University of Alabama who recruited Newsom when he was a high school senior. I was a little surprised Ozzy agreed to be a guest on this podcast because I know doing interviews and drawing attention to himself isn't his thing. But I sent Ozzy an email telling him that I thought people should hear his thoughts on diversity in the NFL. In a league where 70% of the players are black, but just two of the league's 32 general managers are black. As the architect of two Super Bowl winning teams, Ozzy's brilliance as a general manager is undeniable. And in his current role as the Ravens' executive vice president, Newsom remains a key figure in the organization. Born in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Newsom grew up in the segregated South, making his journey to the top of his profession even more legendary. Early on, he had to figure out how to overcome racism, but it's not something he often talks about, according to Kevin Byrne, who worked closely with Newsom in both Baltimore and Cleveland. You know, it's, it's funny, Cliff, through the years, I've had reporters, authors say, hey, could you talk to Ozzy? Could you have Ozzy talk about being the first black general manager? Can you have Ozzy talk about going to separate water fountains when he was a kid or separate bathrooms or being at one point the only black kid in his junior high? Could you have him talk about that? Whenever I asked Ozzy, you know, he, he would kind of smile. He says, I, you know, Kevin, I don't think the world needs to hear what I think of all of that. And I, and I would go, Ozzy, you don't know your influence. People want to hear. People want to know your story. And he would smile and say, maybe someday, but I'm working now. And, and now's the time to work. Now's not the time to go backwards. And, and I think it's remarkable because, as you know, Cliff, it would be so easy for him to say, yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah, I'll be that guy because I am that guy. <laughs> but he, he is, he's a reluctant hero. But what I see, and you've seen it too, Players of any ages who have come, because now they have been any ages as Ozzy has aged, <laughs> they know, maybe through their parents, maybe through their grandparents, maybe because they study history themselves, they know what that person means to that family or, or that community, and they pay attention. And so it's a power that the Ravens have had through the years that not every team can have, because he eliminates a lot of headaches, especially with maybe selfish players, where he'll just say, hey, we don't do that here. Right. And they'll respect that because of Ozzy's history. What Newsom says carries weight. So let's welcome him to Black in the NFL to discuss his life and NFL legacy and his hopes for the league regarding diversity moving forward. When I asked Ozzy about his experiences growing up in the segregated South, he opened up. I have to ask you about, you know, your upbringing in Alabama, because I think it makes your journey even more fascinating. You grew up in the deep South, you saw segregated schools, water fountains for colored only. Can you talk a little bit about some of the racism that you saw growing up and how that kind of shaped your upbringing? I grew up in the 60s in, in the state of Alabama. And, you know, I saw segregation and integration. You know, I saw it all happen. 
And, you know, so people always say, like, I'm the first African-American gentleman. Yeah, but my brother and I were the first to play Little League Baseball in my hometown, the first African-Americans to do that. So I, I grew up in a time of change. I have a brother that's 12 years older than me that didn't have these opportunities because they just wasn't there for him, you know, as it was for me. So I saw times change, but I did have some parents that were willing to allow me to to reach out, to take an initial step like I did when I left the predominantly uh, all-black school and went to a predominantly white school, and I was in the sixth grade. And was it tough? Did I have to bite my tongue? So, yeah, but I was competing with everybody at that point. And uh, I think that helped me today uh, within the job that I had when I was a GM and in the job that I have right now uh, supporting Eric. Is it true that you kind of asked to go to integrated school? Yes, of I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. I did. We had what we call freedom of choice back then. So I asked my, my, my parents if I could go to the all-white school. And, and they allowed me to do it. You know, they did it with, with some trepidation, you know, with some fear. But, you know, they felt like that, you know, it, at worst, I would go there and then decide to come back to the um, all-black school. And I'm thankful for that. Were you ever insulted going on the road there, you know, by fans? Did you ever hear stuff or anything like that, either in high school or college? My junior year, we won a state championship. We went 13-0, and and we were playing in the semifinals. And I was playing against this corner, and he called me everything. Hmm. I mean, all of the, the words that, you know, you and I hmm. both have heard our lives. You know what? And I just kept beating him, you know. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, he did a lot of talking. But I did a lot of scoring. (laughs) (laughs) How going through those those things, Ozzy, did you avoid becoming, A, bitter about some things that that were said or done or that you saw, and B, not being discouraged about how far you could go in this world? Well, I I found out that you can't fight every fight. There are some things, sometimes you just have to bite your lip and walk away. But I also found out that that you can compete with people academically. You know, at the end of the day, we're both learning the same histories, the same math, the same English. And, you know, if you put in the time and study and then come up with the grades, the same same grades that they would get, then they would look at you different. But also uh, when it came to athletics, then we would go out on the field. I remember the, the very first time, I think I was the last person that was chosen. You know, now I would say probably... A week later or two weeks later, I was the first person that was chosen, <laughs> you know, but so you, you, you understood that. But then you allowed your, your, your abilities to speak for you, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, had a, I was a person of different color, but my abilities were the one that did a lot of my talking. You grew up loving Alabama football, but there were people in the state at that time who didn't want that school to integrate. Can you talk about your decision to go there? rather than choose maybe an HBCU or another school that they have such a turbulent history regarding race? My mom eventually agreed to allow me to go there. She wanted me to go to Vanderbilt. And, yeah, you know, Governor Wallace stood in, at, the, at the front door. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. But, you know, Coach Bryant, they played against USC. And the story goes, I mean, and I just saw it was another show that I was a part of showing what Sam the Bam did in Birmingham on that day, you know. And at that point, Coach Bryant went against the governor and went out and decided to 
sign an African-American in Wilbur Jackson. And, and Wilbur had to be a special person to be that first black person to go to the university. Well, but when I came along, I was the third class or the fourth class that was getting recruited at that time. And, you know, the opportunity to play for the University of Alabama was special. And when Coach Brown offered me that opportunity, not only was it great for me, but, you know, it also helped change the lives of my parents. Because now, you know, when my mother, who, you know, was a, a, a private house worker, and, you know, she would go to those people's houses and they go, you know, your son is playing at the University of Alabama. It was a joy for my parents to have me be at the University of Alabama. And they got the fruits of their son playing at the University of Alabama. Newsom was such a star athlete at Colbert County High School in Leeton, Alabama, that every SEC school wanted him when he graduated in 1974. The irony was that many SEC schools had just recently begun recruiting black players. John Mitchell became the first black player at the University of Alabama in 1971. And by 1974, Mitchell had graduated and was a member of Bryant's coaching staff. It was Mitchell's job to convince Newsom to come to Alabama. I walk in on a Friday, and I won't forget, it was an early Friday morning, and Coach Bryant's secretary uh, at that time, her name was Rebecca Christensen, and she said, Coach wanted to see you. So I walk in this office, and he said, uh, Mitch, I want you to go to Leeds, Alabama. I don't know what Leeds, Alabama is. Uh, but we were recruiting Ozzie Newsom, and we might lose him. He's leaning toward Auburn. So I get in my car, and I drive up there, and before I left, yes, I was he said, don't let him out of your sight. So I drive up there and you usually would meet with the player in the principal office or the council office, but uh, they gave me permission to go to his class. So I sat in the back of the class for the remaining of the day. He had probably three more classes that day. And, you know, Ozzy was a great basketball player also. So after school, they had a shoot around before they had a game that night. So I go to practice and sit behind the coach's bench right there. And at that particular time, coaches could transport the players to and from campus. So I took him home and we came back to the game with his mom. And after the game, when the game was over, I took him and his mom back home and I'm giving the spiel to Mrs. Newsom. And it's about midnight down. She said, uh, coach, it's time for you to go. And I said, Mrs. Newsom, uh, out of no disrespect, Coach Bryant told me to not let ours out of my sight and I'm going to sleep on that sofa. And I slept on that sofa that night. And Mrs. Newsom would tease me all the time when she would come to the games in Tuscaloosa. She would say, Coach, I still got that sofa. But I never let Ozzy out of my sight for the entire day. <laughs> did, you get the com did you get the commitment from the Newsoms on that trip, or did you have to wait? <laughs> I got it on that trip. <laughs> I think Mrs. Newsom was tired of me, and she wanted Ozzy to go ahead and make a decision. And he made a decision before I left that he was going to come to the University of Alabama. And I got up that Saturday morning. And I can remember we were playing Tennessee in Birmingham, and I drove back to Birmingham and told Coach Brand that, hey, Ozzy had made a commitment, and he's coming to the university. And it was a great day for all of us. <laughs> now, you didn't know Ozzy at that time well, but obviously you've gotten to know him extremely well. When did you kind of figure out that, hey, this isn't just a special player, but a special person? 
when Ozzy came to the university, he was a little shy guy. And, you know, Ozzy started out as a split end when he was at Leighton High School. And, you know, as he matured and gained a little weight, Coach Bryant moved him from a wide out into tight end. And, you know, Ozzy, if you watched him practice, and after his first year there, you knew this guy was special. He was not a run-of-the-mill athlete. This guy was really special. And I can say this, you know, I was around Coach Bryant for a long time, and Coach Bryant had really, he loved all his ball player, but the three players that he had a lot of feeling for was Leroy Jordan, uh, Joe Namath, and Ozzy Newsom. He gave him the nickname the Oz. So mm-hmm. Coach Bryant had a lot of respect for Ozzy Newsom, and he knew what type of player and person he was. He seems to be a guy, I mean, the Steelers and Ravens are rivals. You know, you hear about Belichick talking about Ozzy and some glowing terms. Do you know anyone doesn't like Ozzy Newsom? Uh, see, I've been knowing Ozzy since he's 75 when I recruited him. I can't think of anybody. You know, I mean, uh, I, I can say this. If Ozzy ever decided to come back to Alabama full-time, he could be elected governor because that's how popular he is and that's how the people revere him in the state of Alabama. It, it would be no question that he could win. Newsom had a great career at Alabama, averaging 20.3 yards per catch which stood as an SEC record for over 20 years. He was named the Crimson Tide Player of the Decade for the 1970s. The Cleveland Browns drafted Ozzy in the first round as a 23rd overall pick in 1978. And Bear Bryant had already told Newsom that though he played wide receiver in college, tight end would be his best position in the NFL. When he arrived in Cleveland, Browns head coach Sam Retigliano agreed with Bryant and put him at tight end, where he would begin a playing career that landed him in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Calvin Hill became one of Newsom's closest friends when they became teammates with the Browns. Hill became like a big brother to Newsom, nine years older and near the end of his distinguished NFL career as a running back. It didn't take Hill long to realize that Newsom was going to be a special player. What qualities about Ozzie made you want to take him under your wing when he joined the Browns as a rookie? When I got there, I got there four games into the the 78 season, and he had moved from wide receiver to tight end. And, you know, we had pretty good practices. They didn't have all these limits like they do now. (laughs) Right. And the thing I I noticed about him is he never got tired. You know, he could run a long pattern. He was back, back in the huddle. And I remember, you know, remarking to uh, Reggie Rucker, who I knew from the Cowboy days, I said, this guy doesn't sweat. He was always there. He was dependable. And then as I got to know him, I was struck by his humility. That He's not a guy who who's boastful. He doesn't talk about himself very often. I also got to know that he's very curious. You know, he want, he's always learning. You hear all the time about people who are lifetime learners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ozzy has that sort of what I would call intellectual curiosity. You know, he was always wanting to know about things that he didn't know. And he retains, you know, when he when he learns something, he retains it. You know, he talks. I mean, if you get to know him, he'll talk and he'll talk smack every now and then. <laughs> but, you know, he's not boastful and he's listening. You know, a lot of people are talking all the time, but they're not listening. You know, the thing about him is he listens and filtering, you know, what's good and what's bad. And he just has a way with people. doesn't matter who he meets. 
You know, it can be somebody from the bayou of, of Mississippi or, you know, Alabama, or it could be somebody up in New York of Park Avenue. Uh, he's comfortable. Very smart guy. I mean, you know, he, you know, I used to kid him. I'm glad that he didn't go to Harvard or Princeton. You know, he would have been tough for us to, to play against at Yale. But I mean, he, he has that kind of intellectual power. Unless you knew him, you know, he's not, you know, he's not going to tell you how smart he is or try to overwhelm you. He's just going to listen. And, you know, when he responds to something, you know, you say, wow, this guy has tremendous intellectual firepower. Right. But he understands people. I think all of these qualities have probably stood him in good stead in terms of you know both his first career as a player in the NFL and probably even more so as an evaluator of, of talent in the NFL. Now, some players, especially great players, don't have the patience it takes to be great at being a coach or great at being a general manager. Where do you think Ozzie's patience comes from? You know, it probably goes back to, you know, the way he was raised. You know, he was raised right, you know. I mean, yes, sir, no, sir. You know, his parents did a heck of a job in raising him. And and those values, you know, those qualities that they instilled into him have stood him in good stead. He didn't expect to be given things. He had to earn things. You know, integrating a, you know, an all-white school in the Jim Crow South. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, during that same period, he was a young kid integrating a high school. I can remember driving through Alabama, and I was on my P's and Q's. (laughs) And then going to the University of Alabama. The school had only integrated maybe three or four years before in terms of, you know, or at least the Southeast Conference. Right. So he was in the vanguard. You know, he he developed a, a, a sense of just, understanding and being comfortable around things that were different, patience to learn and understand how to fit in. But he he was the right guy, you know, in terms of his temperament, in terms of his athletic ability, and in terms of his ability to carry the lessons that his, his mother and father infused in him forward. You know, they have stood him in good stead throughout his life. Seeing some of the things that Ozzy saw, you know, growing up, in Alabama, as far as, you know, segregation, racism, what do you think kept him from becoming bitter about those things he had to go through? I don't doubt for a moment that there are times when, you know, he feels, you know, anger. Or, but Ozzy's a guy that, you, as you get to know him and as he gets to know you, you know, he has a way of transcending the superficial differences uh, because of his character and because of the kind of person he is. When people met him, whether it was in Alabama or Cleveland or in Baltimore, he's the real deal in terms of, of, of who he is, his character, his integrity. I've never met anybody who disliked Ozzy, and that's because he knows how to treat people. And, you know, if you treat people you know, the right way, they'll treat you the right way. When he's looking you know, to hire people or when he's looking to hire you know, football players, you know, he, he goes beyond sort of the superficial. You know, he goes beyond the speed, size, and strength. Is this the kind of person that's going to fit into the culture that I want, that we have built in Baltimore? It's those kind of people that win games for you. You know, that's because he's a people person. He studies people. And I told him once, you know, he would have been a great psychiatrist or psychologist. You know, I mean, I I played 13 years. And uh, the last four years that I played, I played as a teammate of his. So I was very fortunate to have the pleasure of his company. And 
it's been a thrill for me to watch him go on to be successful beyond you know the the playing field as a Baltimorean. You know, even though I've lived a lot of other places, you know, I still consider myself a Baltimorean. I'm, I'm doubly excited at the fact that he's done it in my hometown and brought successful football back to Baltimore. Newsom's life took an unexpected turn in 1996 when the Browns relocated from Cleveland to Baltimore and became the Ravens. Browns fans were bitter about losing their team, and Newsom was leaving Cleveland, a place where he was revered and spent his entire NFL career. It was an emotional time for Newsom, but he remained somebody that others could lean on. Let's bring back Kevin Byrne, who made the move with Ozzie from Cleveland to Baltimore. You guys had an unusual start in Baltimore in that you came from Cleveland and, you know, left left a broken-hearted city behind. Can you talk a little about the emotions that both of you guys had at that time making that move? You know, the last game at, at uh, for the Browns in Cleveland Stadium was against Cincinnati. Bill Belichick was our head coach. There was chaos at that game. It was a, it was a Cleveland winter day, too. It was gray, and it was cold, and it was windy. And fans were mean-spirited. And uh, while they wanted to embrace the players, they wanted to show their anger, too. So they were literally destroying the stadium and throwing things onto the field. It was just a remarkable day. And then we win the game, and many of the players ran out to the dog pound to embrace and shake hands with, with the fans. I wandered out to the middle of the field. You know, Cleveland is my hometown. Right. And I, w- I was just like, my God. What have we done? What, what What's going on here? You know, we've broken the hearts of a community, and I'm part of that. And then all of a sudden, I feel this right hand on my shoulder, you know, from somebody standing to my left. And I turn around and look look up, of course, and it's Ozzy. I think recognizing that for me, I mean, he's the all-time Cleveland Brown, but he was kind enough to recognize that Kevin's a Clevelander. Kevin's family is here. Kevin's high school friends are here. And, and I thought, well, that's a remarkable thing to do because he, he was sad. And we both looked at each other and we had tears in our eyes. It was, it was a sad, sad moment. Can you talk about when he made the transition from player to executive and what you remember about him going through that at that time? Well, almost every memory I have of Ozzy includes humility, you know, by him. So he, he's now one of the greatest players ever, a Hall of Famer, right? Yep, absolutely. He decides his career is over, and he goes to Art Modell, and he admits, I'm, I'm not sure what I want to do, Art. And Art said, well, why don't we let you try scouting? Why don't we let you try coaching? You can do it. Kind of choose what you want if you want to be in this business. And if you don't want to be in the business, I'll respect that. So Ozzy's first year after his retirement from playing was to learn the nuts and bolts of scouting, to learn the nuts and bolts of coaching, which you would assume he would know, but Ozzy never assumes he knows anything. He just works at it. (laughs) He started his post-playing career as an assistant coach on Bill Belichick's staff with the Browns, and he also scouted. Belichick didn't give Newsom special treatment, nor did Brown's general manager, Ernie Acorsi. He hit the road as a scout 
going to some places that other scouts preferred not to go. He'd watched countless hours of tape. All the while, Ozzie was learning the ropes, learning everything he could about the business of football. Now, you mentioned something that I don't get here talking about a lot, your coaching with Belichick. Can you talk about that experience and how that helped you as far as when you became a general manager? When I retired, Ernie Acorsi, uh, you know, who was a great general manager, was the general manager of, of the Browns at that time, and they hired Bill Belichick. So I'm sitting in the room with two guys uh, that were monsters in the business. And so I became a sponge. and and I did a lot of listening, but, you know, both of them, they just took me and just threw me out there and said, hey, you know, if you want to learn the business, to understand the business, then, you know, you need to get out there and do it. So, I, you know, I was on the road scouting and, and learning a trade, and I just can't appreciate those times of being out there that was put forth by both Bill and, uh, and Ernie. And, of course, you know, what Bill has done, you know, as a head coach with the Patriots is, you know, uh, unthought of, but, you know, just the way that he, uh, his discipline in his meetings, the way he always listened to everybody, but you know what, you know, he was always, he, he had a structure in place and he believed in that structure and that structure is what won. So that helped me to say, Hey, you know what, when you have something, you build through that structure and you stay with it. You know, it's not, it's not you don't change every time something happens, you change, you try to stay the course. Ozzie officially became the Ravens general manager and the first black general manager in NFL history on November 22, 2002. The late Art Modell, who owned the Ravens at the time, made the decision with strong conviction. He is the architect of this team. He's the architect of the Super Bowl team and he's architect on this, this version of, of the Baltimore Ravens. We are in the transitional stage and uh, I like I compare the relationship I have with uh, Ozzy and, and Brian to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Ozzy is the composer and Brian's the conductor. And together they work well together and have had nothing but success. Uh, it's been a very wonderful relationship. In the case of Ozzy, we've been through a lot together over the years. His loyalty to me and to my family is, is without question the greatest ever exhibited. He was a He's been, uh, another, as I said, another son to me, and, and I love him dearly, and, and I'm proud to do this for him, not because he asked me, didn't know anything about it, but of course I think he deserves it. He's, the, without a question, in my opinion, the best, most, most proficient personnel man in the NFL. When you first became the first black general manager in league history, did you feel the historical importance of that? Not really, you know, just trying to get the job done. I was focused on that, but I had the opportunity to uh, do a radio show with the late John Thompson. Okay. And uh, we were in conversation, and uh, he made the statement that, hey, do you realize that now that you have this position, that other, you know, African-American males can grow up wanting that opportunity? So... At that point, I did understand the significance of it, mm. that, you know, I had opened a door for uh, other African-Americans to be able to uh, ascend to the position of GM. 
you talked about finishing and, and doing the job. Your first draft, you have Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis. Your last draft, you have an MVP and three pro bowlers. Do you take pride in the fact that, hey, when I did the job, you know, I, I started strong, I finished it strong? Well, you know, I, I think that goes to the, the people that I work with. I believe in empowering people to, to do their job. And, you know, we had a, a great scouting staff, you know, and that first draft, that staff was the same guys that I worked with. You know, I broke bread with those guys every day. And, you know, I just ended up having to be the guy that uh, had the, uh, the title. And then and in the last draft, but they, I think the scouts in the last draft and the scouts in the first draft, it, they got different names, different faces, but they all the same. By any measure, Newsom was one of the most successful general managers in NFL history. Let's bring back Calvin Hill, who says Ravens fans were lucky to have a man like Newsom building their franchise from the beginning. How important do you think it was for Ozzie to have success as the league's first black general manager? I think it was very important. I mean, it was important for him because, you know, he wants to win. And, you know, if you look at what he's accomplished, I mean, you know, think about it. He came to a a new city, uh, and although he was not the general manager initially, you know, he was the personnel guy. He was, you know, the acting, the de facto general manager. And, you know, he came with art from Cleveland. He was a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, so to speak. And he was given that responsibility you know, in a new city, the first draft, you know, had he fumbled that, you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, he had established any sort of credibility in Baltimore, except as a player. That's how most people knew him. And they knew him as a player who played for the Cleveland Browns. He was coming into a city that was still a Baltimore coat city. I mean, there were memories of those great teams and you know, people were still suffering from what they saw was the Colts moving out of town in the middle of the night, et cetera. And uh, here comes this this team from Cleveland, you know, for him to come in as a black general manager in his first draft, you know, draft two Hall of Famers. You know, I mean, that was unbelievable. You know, and to have teams that were competitive right away. They weren't, you know, they weren't necessarily winning, but they were competitive. You know, he just started putting the pieces together. And I think, you know, the fans in Baltimore who were diehard Colt fans, you know, really began to appreciate. They like to say that people in Baltimore like seafood. Well, he was putting together a bisque, a football bisque that had all kinds of ingredients and it was tasting pretty good to all the fans. I'm from Baltimore. I'm, I'm from Turner Station. You know, I have friends who were diehard Colt fans and thought they'd never watch an NFL game again. And when I go over to Turner Station or when I go to Baltimore and I see them, they uh, they all have Raven stuff on. <laughs> he has won them over. He had a difficult job, and uh, he did it with flying colors. I mean, you know, you look at the draft of two years ago. Yes. I guess it was his last draft. He trades back into the first round. Lamar Jackson's getting ready to, to, to fall out of the, the first round, even though he's a Heisman Trophy winner. Ozzy trades back into the first round and drafts him. And two years later, the guy's an MVP. How many guys can pull that off? Ozzy Newsom built two Super Bowl winners in two different eras, 16 years apart. 
His impact stood the test of time. He couldn't have started any better with Hall of Famers Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis as his first two draft picks in 1996. And he couldn't have ended better either with MVP Lamar Jackson and two more Pro Bowlers, Orlando Brown Jr. and Mark Andrews, with his last draft as GM in 2018. After his final pick, scouts and coaches poured into the Ravens draft room to congratulate him. It spoke to the respect that they have for Ozzy, and a man that hardly shows emotion teared up and hugged John Harbaugh, Dick Cass, Steve Bishotti, and Eric DaCosta. I've been doing this for 22 years. You are my last pick. You gonna make me proud? All right, that, that's all I need to hear. Okay, here's Coach Harbaugh. Even though Ozzy was a trailblazer, he never operated like he was working on his own. Talking to people who worked with him, it was his ability to build consensus that made him so special. And that's pretty remarkable for a man who grew up in a deeply divided world. Ozzy was always willing to listen. What are some of the things that make Ozzy such a great leader? Well, number one, he listens. You know, I've been in two head coaching searches with Ozzy. When, right. when the Ravens, when we hired Brian Billick and we hired John Harbaugh. And, you know, there were a number of us involved, but the reality is, Ozzy was going to make the decision, okay. you know, because Art Modell would listen to Ozzy and so would Steve Bishotti. Uh, but I, I marveled and I assume he runs his draft meetings similarly is that he kept inviting everybody else to say their piece, say their piece and, and kind of let the group come to the decision together. Now it might've been the guys Ozzy wanted in the first place, <laughs> But he never, despite his influence, despite his power, put his foot down or his fist on the table and says, look, let's, I don't care what you guys think. Uh, let's not talk about it anymore. We're going to hire Brian Billick. All right, guys? Or we're going to hire John Harbaugh. J just so everybody knows, we can all say this stuff. But he listens and listens. He has a sincerity about it. It's impressive. He has a remarkable listening ability and humility for a guy who's achieved the highest levels he can both on and off the field. At the same time, Ozzy had the courage to stand up for what he knew was right. Are there any draft night or trade stories involving Ozzy that come to mind that are kind of etched in your memory? Well, well the one was Brian Billick's first draft with us. We had a second round pick. And there were teams interested in the second round, and he was shopping it. And so Brian Billick, as Ozzy is accepting phone calls for this second round pick, says to Art Modell and to Ozzy in the draft room, and this is one of Ozzy's first drafts, he goes, hey, hey, you know what? We shouldn't be trading away draft choices. We need players. Okay. You know, we don't. We don't need players next year. We need players this year. Right. And so Ozzy just kind of nodded, you know, yeah, okay, I understand. I hear you, Brian. And then all of a sudden he's making a trade with the Atlanta Falcons for next year's <laughs> Falcon number one. He's going to give up our number two, for, and he's going to get in return the Falcons pick next year. 
Ozzy goes, we, we have a deal unless my player's there in the second round. Now, that was just trying to get a little bit more because he really didn't have a guy targeted at that point, as best I could tell. Okay. So now it gets to be we're on the clock, and Art Modell says to Ozzy, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I, I'm, I think I'm going to make the trade with Atlanta. Uh, Art, we're going to give up this second-round pick, and we're going to get Atlanta's first-round pick. Now, Atlanta had just been in the Super Bowl. They had just lost the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So it was going to be a low right. number one, maybe. So Brian Billick stands up, and he goes, hey, Oz, I, I, Art, I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but, you know, the reason I'm here is because you don't have enough good players. Wow. We can get a good player right now. In fact, I love that tight end. Ozzy, you like that tight end. Let's go get that tight end. Ozzy says, I, I hear you. I hear you, Brian. I hear you. You know, and then, and then there's six minutes left, and Atlanta calls and says, you know, Ozzy, you're still wanting to do the deal? And Ozzy says, yes, I want to <laughs> do the deal. So he makes the trade, and Brian storms out of the room. And so does Phil Savage, his college <laughs> director, because the college guy, he wants draft picks. Of course. As it turns out, by the way, the Falcons fall apart the following season, <laughs> and it ends up being the fifth pick in the first round that next year. And guess who we take? Jamal Lewis. Oh, my goodness. He becomes a starter for the following year by midseason, replacing Priest Holmes, and we ride Jamal and our defense to a Super Bowl championship. Ozzy's right again. What a surprise, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Brian learned. Brian laughs about it today. He goes, you know, I thought I could use my influence and <laughs> thought I could you know, get Art to say, you know, let Brian make the choice. But uh, no. he was right in letting Ozzy do it. Ozzy's unique background gives him insight into dealing with a wide variety of people. Ozzy doesn't just relate to football people or old schoolers. He relates to people, period. Just listen to his conversation with Barack Obama the first black president in United States history, a couple days after the Ravens won Super Bowl 47. He and John Harbaugh sat in a small office at M&T Bank Stadium following the Ravens Super Bowl parade when the president called to congratulate them. For as modest as Ozzy is, he knows a trailblazer when he sees one. Mr. President, this is Ozzy and I just want you to know it's really an honor and I'm looking forward to uh, coming up there and shaking your hand and uh, and I know you'll be shaking hands with Nick Saban pretty soon, too. So that's also a, a, an honor for me, and I'll be happy about that one. So, so you're going to take credit for, for, for uh, the Crimson uh, as well as, as, as the Ravens, huh? Mr. Oh. President, he always does. <laughs> Winner time. The, uh, I work for two teams, Mr. President. I got you. I got you. Do you feel there's any aspect of being a black general manager that helped you do your job better, whether it be life experience you had, um, that maybe at some point your background helped you in some ways, just the fact that you were Well, I mean, if you take me, you know, I, I grew up in the locker room, so I understand the locker room. But I, I guess what you're getting at, that in the majority, well, I guess 70% of the league is African-Americans. Correct. And so, yeah, we are able to identify, you know, with, with some of the issues that our young men are dealing with today. But also, I can identify with, with the white player also. So, you know, I think there is some benefit there. 
But I don't think you can just fall on that. Well, you know, I know how to deal with an African American. No, you got to be because number one, you got to be a deal with an owner. And, you know, and we don't have any African American owners. And so you got to be able to sit across the table from some some very powerful men and be able to talk with them and to be able to demonstrate to them that you can make a qualified decision. Today, Ozzy remains a key member of the organization. As a general manager, Newsom was rarely absent from Ravens practices. That remains true. And as Kevin Byrne describes, Ozzy's persona still carries weight. Usually Ozzy was at practice. He wasn't out on the road much. He was always around the team. How much do you think that helped him build bonds with players and coaches and also have a pulse on the team? He still does it today in his semi retirement. <laughs> right. So he goes to every practice. And not only goes to every practice, he then goes back to his office and watches video of the practice. He watches the coach's video. And then he'll give a report to Coach Harbaugh and the coordinators, just as he's always done. In the meantime, he's the one, and he sits with Eric, and he's given Eric credibility, and Eric recognizes that, where you know, you'll have the player, you know, let's take Matt Judon, for example, and, you know, where, where Matt will walk by and say, hey, when are you guys going to pay me? You know, and, and Ozzy, <laughs> because he's there, he says, you know what? We want to pay you, and we'll pay you fairly, you know? It's just, can you get more from somebody else? And if you do, what's that worth? Wouldn't you rather be here? So he constantly churns a rapport. I've seen him with players going into last year's of contract, walk up to him after practice and say, hey, Oz, when are you going to pay me? And, and Oz will go, when you play better than you're playing right now, that's when I'll pay you. <laughs> now, how many people can get away with saying that right. and not hurt? or fracture a team, but because it's Ozzy saying that, they respect him so much, players do, that they say, okay, I got it. I need to bring my level up. Or that player will come to Ozzy's office and he'll say, how do I get my level to a higher level? What do I need to be doing? And so he's a great leader that way. When John Mitchell spent the night on Mrs. Newsom's couch trying to recruit Ozzy, Mitchell didn't know he was recruiting a legendary player who would also become a legendary GM. But Mitchell clearly understands Newsom's impact now. I'm sure you're not surprised he's had so much success. Why do you think he's been one of the few guys who's not only been such a great player, but also a great executive? Well, when when I was at Cleveland with Ozzy and uh, I coached the defensive line, you know, Ozzy at one time thought he might want to be a coach. And for a year, he did work with Richard Mann, who was the receiver coach at Cleveland at that time. I think what really got Ozzy was those long hours that the coaches kept. <laughs> he said, hey, I like to do something else. Hey, coaching is fun, but hey, I can go to the front office and have a lot more time with my family and do other things. But Ozzy had a keen eye for talent and he related to the players really well. If you ask me what attributes that he had was that he could recognize talent and he was good with players. How would you describe the legacy he's had as a first black general manager? You obviously know he's a player, but what do you think about the legacy that he's left as far as being, you know, so, so important in the NFL? First of all, it's how you conduct yourself. And if you've ever been around Ozzy, he's a gentleman. Uh, he conducts himself in a professional way. Uh, he makes people feel easy around him. 
he doesn't have to be the league dog. Uh, he will fit in in any situation. And I think a lot of young guys who aspire to be uh, head coaches or general managers or in the upper echelon in the NFL in whatever capacity they choose, the first person that I would go to would be Ozzie Newsom. With Newsom in his mid-60s and the lack of minority GM still an issue in the NFL, I wanted to get his thoughts on the NFL's hiring practices at the executive level. What do you think are the biggest reasons? I mean, you were the first black general manager, and today in 2020, we have just two black general managers at the current time. What do you think are the biggest reasons why those numbers are almost the same as when you became the first black general manager? We are not doing a good job of getting African-Americans in front of the decision makers. I think if we can get the, um, the great candidates, and we got a very good pool of candidates, as you know, I work on the diversity committee and I, work, I am on the uh, competition committee. We got a great pool of candidates. And what we need to do is get those candidates in front of the decision makers. And I think if they get that, those opportunities, then those guys will also come away with some jobs. Are you perplexed at all when you see guys like two guys who you know very well, you know, Rick Smith, Jerry Reese, who had success when they were general manager? I mean, Jerry Reese won two Super Bowl to Giants, still haven't gotten a second opportunity. I think Rick is going to get an opportunity. You know, Rick, he walked away from the game to take care of his wife. You know, right. that was a very noble thing that he did. I've been in conversation with Rick uh, on several occasions here over the last two or three months, and I think he's going to get an opportunity. And I think if, if he gets in front of people, the Rick Smith that I know, it's going to be hard for them not to hire them. And the same thing with Jerry. I mean, a guy that's got two Super Bowls on his resume. So it's getting those two guys in front of the decision makers and with the wealth of knowledge that they have, then I think they both could come away with opportunities. You have a close relationship with those guys and others. Have you embraced this role, Ozzy, at this stage of, of being a mentor for other black GMs or potential black GMs? Well, yeah, you know, I I get calls from the up and comers and they want some advice. And, you know, and what I try to do is listen. And what I tell, always tell them is, you know, play to your strengths. If you're a good scout and you came up with the scouting, then play to that. You know what, you know, always play to your strength. If you came up on the administrative side and then you're very good with the salary cap and doing contract, then play to that. You know what, always play to your strength and then you can go out and hire people to be able to help you with your weaknesses. Now, I know you're a modest guy, Ozzy, but even as recently as a few months ago, Jason Wright, who became the first black team president in the NFL with the Washington team, mentioned you as somebody that he modeled his career after. How does that make you feel when you hear somebody say that? It's about the job that you do. You know, as a football player, whether I was in high school, college, or in NFL, I got judged about my performance on the field. And, and people would talk about, you know, how I prepared, how I played on Sunday, but also how I prepared during the week. So I, I took those same things into personnel. And coaching, which I was doing the first four years with uh, Belichick, is, you know what, I, I just took pride in my craft and, you know, uh, the opportunity to to be able to work well with other people 
but also to be able to take that responsibility that I had to be able to make a decision based on all of the information that uh, I could get. Even though you're very involved still, Isaac, was there any part that was hard for you to, to walk away from the GM job? And did you think about when I leave this position, there won't be many African-American general managers like there were when I started? That's where I can now take some time to spend time talking uh, with some of the young guys. You know, I, was, I, on, I had two conversations today with some uh, young GMs, and I got a, a conversation after this podcast with another one. So I can take the time now to, to, to talk with those guys and to help guide them, but to be there to listen to them and to then provide some insights for, for, for those guys. So uh, I think I'm in a place now where uh, I am trusted by those guys and I can try to just give them some uh, little insights as to what they need to do when they get in front of the decision maker and how hopefully they could come away with the opportunity to decide whether they want the job or not want it. Do you think we're going to see more players make the transition, particularly black players, you know, 10, 20 years from now, that you have from the field to the front office? Yes. I, you know, I, I am seeing that, you know, and what used to happen is uh, a player, especially an accomplished player, would have a tough time starting at the bottom and working their way back up to the top. But I think now, especially, and I always talk to, to players when they call me, get it out of your system that you, if you want to be in TV or whatever else you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to get all of that out of your system. And once you get that out of your system and you decide you want to come into in the personnel, in the coaching, then realize in order for you to be the success, you need to start at the bottom and work your way up. And, you know, and they are at that point right now. You know, they, they've they got out there and they decided, hey, I can't be an entrepreneur. I love football. I love what I could bring to the game. And so they wanted to come back to it. So we're having more and more of that right now, that, you know, guys are coming back to it. And I always tell them, but the only way you're going to be a success, you need to start at the bottom and work your way up. Ozzy, you've been terrific. Is there any other message you want to leave regarding – you know, diversity in the NFL, you know, this has been a turbulent year, 2020. You know, you have so much wisdom. I'm just curious about your thoughts about what you see for the league going forward. I will say this, and because I work hand-in-hand with him, our commissioner, Roger Goodell, it's important to him that we change the landscape of the amount of diversity that we have at the coaching level head coach, coordinators, whatever, at the GM levels, assistant GMs, and other positions within the uh, the organization, like, you know, Jason just got the job being the first African-American president, that there are you know, other positions, but our commissioner is committed to that task. And, and I think when you have the leader committed, then everybody else will follow. People have been following Ozzie Newsom's lead for decades and they will continue to do so for decades more. Just out of curiosity, I recently Googled the staff directory of Temple University School of Pharmacy. I saw smiling faces of different ages and ethnic backgrounds, and many women. I saw a faculty and staff that looked a lot different than it did when my mom was the first black female pharmacy student to graduate from Temple. What I saw was progress when it comes to diversity and inclusion. 
When it comes to Temple School of Pharmacy, my mom played a role in starting that. When it comes to NFL general managers, I know Ozzie Newsom did. I really hope you've been enjoying this podcast. I want to ask you again to please subscribe if you haven't already, leave a rating and review, and spread the word to your friends and family. A lot of the topics we've talked about recently, from diversity hiring and off the field banners, are in the news right now. This is important stuff, and I hope you'll give it a listen and share with others. Thank you. Black in the NFL is powered by Blue Wire. The show is produced and edited by Noah Eberhardt and executive produced by Michelle Andres, Ryan Mink, John Yales, and Peter Moses. Tune into the Ravens Podcast Network for two other podcasts, The Lounge, hosted by Garrett Downing and Ryan Mink, and What Happened to That Guy, hosted by John Eisenberg. Thanks to all my guests, and join us for the next episode of Black in the NFL. Until then, be blessed, and thanks for listening. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.